Good evening. I'm Pete Stearns, and I'm one of the teachers here on staff, and I'm so thankful to be with you tonight, uh, sharing what God has just been laying on my heart over the past week. Uh, Will we open together in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come in this place. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to worship your name, and Lord, just celebrate the things that you have been doing in our lives. Lord, we thank you for testimonies like Tammy's of what you're doing around the world. And Lord, we pray that you would just empower us to find more opportunities to support your missions in our communities, in our country, and in our world. Lord, as we come before you tonight, Lord, bring us peace. Calm our hearts. Allow us to hear your word clearly. Lord, let us set aside the distractions that we may have brought in with us. A project from work that's run into the weekend. Spring cleaning as we get ready for the summer. An argument with our parents or our children. Lord, put our hearts at rest and allow us to hear you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as many of you, if you've been 5 o'clock Saturday attenders, know, my wife Brittany and I have just recently moved into a new house in Westmont. I promise soon enough I will stop telling stories about it. But we really love this house because it has a nice little backyard, um, which is something that a lot of apartments didn't offer us. And we're excited about having opportunities to play badminton out back or grill or, or play a little bags. Um, but another thing we love about it is it's just a place to go and relax and be in nature. Uh, along the fence in the perimeter of the yard, uh, there are trees. And the trees provide a little bit of shelter a little bit of privacy, and a little bit of shade during the summer. But as this spring has come along, we've started to notice that pretty much every other tree is dead as a doornail. <laughs> Branches have no leaves on them. Limbs are hanging precariously over the house about to fall. And we've realized that for some reason, the soil just doesn't have enough nutrients to support all of that life. I'm not a botanist, but I would assume that the trees that are thriving there, their root systems are somehow beating out those of the others. And they're competing for limited resources. Now, this is not a new principle. This is one that we've learned about in science class. It's the survival of the fittest. And to be quite honest, it permeates into almost every facet of our lives. If you think about it, as early as kindergarten, children are going in and interviewing to be in prestigious charter schools. In middle school, we have our students being evaluated on a bell curve, which directly compares them with their peers and classmates. As we apply to colleges, we know that the most prestigious schools accept 10 to 12% of their applicants. It gets even harder as we leave college and enter into the marketplace 
and hundreds apply for a job that only one will get. When we apply for mortgages or apartment contracts, we're directly compared to other families and other investments. My wife and I are looking at adopting a dog from a shelter, and for crying out loud, to adopt a homeless dog, you need to go through an interview process, and they come to your home and check it out to make sure it's all right. Our society thrives on competition. We recognize that there are a limited amount of resources, a limited amount of opportunities. And as we compare ourselves to others, some will flourish. Some will succeed, while others will miss out and not have a chance for those same opportunities. What is a little bit unsettling is that I believe that this mindset is beginning to leak over into the church. And when I say the church tonight, I'm not meaning just Christ Church of Oakbrook. I'm meaning the church in general. This competition for limited resources seems prevalent in the Christian society today. This picture of live and vibrant trees growing up next to the trees that they're choking out and pointing at and pointing out the flaws. We treat it as if God's love is limited. That he only has so much of it to go around. And so we compete against one another in order to prove that we indeed are worthy of it. We begin to act and speak a little bit differently as it compares to those that are around us. And when that becomes difficult, when we start to realize that there's nothing we can do to earn that love, we begin pointing the finger at others that don't deserve the love. We point our fingers at the dead trees, saying, Jesus, they can't deserve your love. Their theology is messed up. Look at the sin in their life. We're living as if God has not already prepared a place for us. And if we can take any encouragement out of this, it's that, honestly, this has been something that even the disciples in the Gospels were struggling with. And we've heard throughout the last few weeks, um, Jesus' disciples coming to him and asking, which disciple is the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right-hand side? Which one of us is competing the best? And now, in John chapter 14, which we'll read in a moment and was on the screen just a minute ago, we see Jesus sitting at the Last Supper after telling his disciples that one of you will betray me. And the disciples are saying, surely not me, but probably in their heads thinking, well, maybe him. I don't know. And Jesus responds to this insecurity. He responds to this insecurity that produces competition in a powerful way. John 14, verses 1 and 2. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? 
If you've had guests over to your house before, you know that it takes quite a bit of preparation to get the room ready for them to stay in it. And Jesus is saying, look, if there wasn't a place, I wouldn't have been doing all this work to get it ready for you. If I didn't have enough rooms, if there weren't enough resources to go around, believe me, I would have spared myself the time, the trouble and the energy. But I've already prepared a room for you. I've already given it to you and you no longer need to compete. You no longer need to prove to yourself or to me that you are worthy of my love. I came here to show you that myself. We begin to realize that this competition is silly and quite frankly fruitless. But even more As we continue to read, we realize that it's destructive and divisive. In chapter 14, as it continues in verse 12, it says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works. Because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it. So that the son can bring glory to the father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus continues to reassure his disciples and he says, I tell you the truth, when I leave, you are going to do the same, if not greater things than I have already done. Who in this room can raise their hand and say that they are living a life of greater works than Jesus Christ? Yet that's what he is telling us. He is offering us. He's saying that your roots are not competing against those of your peers. Your place is set aside for you. And now I am freeing you to tap into my power. To tap into my kingdom and begin to be my representation here on earth. And to do great things that point people back to me. That when people see your lives They see me reflected in you. Yet still, I'm prone to point my finger at those that are not living up to this. Still, I'm prone to convince myself that I am somehow more worthy than the person next to me. That I am somehow in more need of these nutrients and these resources. But as I think about it, it strikes me that Scripture and God's story has been written by flawed and sinful people. People that I'm not even sure we would invite into this room to be with us tonight if they were living among us. Hebrews 11 is one of my very favorite passages, and we're going to look at it in a moment, and it is essentially like the comprehensive guide to all of Sunday school. If you've ever heard a Sunday school lesson about a biblical hero, it's in Hebrews 11. But the reason I love it is that it's a lineage of faith. And it provides us a background of flawed and sinful people that have tapped into the power of God through their faith to do incredible things. And so together, I want to highlight just a few of these characters. 
as an encouragement to us as we go out from this place and try to live into this reality of a God that is supporting us and wanting us to do greater things than even he. So we'll start in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, all of us are familiar with Noah and his story, whether we learned it in Sunday school or just watched Russell Crowe's depiction of it. Noah was God's guy. When all the earth rejected God, when the entire world turned their backs on him in such a way that God decided to restart creation, he used Noah as his catalyst. Think about that. Think about the kind of life this man must have lived, the kind of impact that he has had on this world, that he is the restarting point of salvation history. Yet if we look in Genesis chapter 9, we hear a story of a man that we would probably turn away from the church. You see, Noah had these fields and he was working out in the fields and after a really long day, he came home and he began to drink. And the drinking didn't stop after one or two glasses. It says he drunk himself into such a stupor that he passed out unconscious, naked in his home. Yet this is the man that God chose to restart his creation. You see, Noah was sinful. Noah was a man that you and I might point to and say, at least I'm not like that guy. Yet Noah is recorded in scripture and remembered as a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11. Passage goes on, and I want to look at verse 24. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. Moses has always been one of my favorite biblical characters because it's a story of a man that overcomes hardship that overcomes the risk of his life, that leaves all the world's treasures in order to become a humble shepherd. And then we hear that God uses him to come in to Pharaoh's courts and set his people free. We know Moses because he put his staff down in the sea and two gigantic walls formed and the people of God exited. We've heard over and over about the 12 plagues, about the staff thrown to the ground to become a snake, the river turning to blood. Moses 
made huge impact for God. Yet at the same time, this is the same man that has some pretty serious anger issues. That when he didn't get along with a guard in Egypt, he brutally murdered him with his hands. So brutally that the slave that was being beaten by this guard became afraid of Moses. Yet he is recorded in scripture as a hero of our faith. His testimony is what led the Israelites out of Egypt. We go on and in verse 31, this is one of my favorites because it's so challenging. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, again, we're all familiar with this story. We saw the veggie tails, peas, dumping slurpees down on the Israelites. But essentially, the city of Jericho stood in the way of God's people and getting to the promised land. And the city of Jericho turned their heads from God and disrespected him. And so Joshua decided that he was going to send two spies into the city to do some recon work, to find out where the weaknesses were. So these two Israelite spies enter into enemy territory. And where do they go for hiding? The one place, the one home that will not ask any questions of two strangers entering. The home of a prostitute. And they enter into Rahab's home and they hide out there. And Rahab, when she hears their story, recognizes that God is at work. And so she hides them. And when the uh, guards come to the door, she tells them that they've passed on. Rahab, who led in two Israelite men for all the wrong reasons, is recorded as a part of the lineage of Christ. Is written into history. Her and her family was saved when the walls came tumbling down. Yet she is a woman of deep sin. One of my favorite sports movies is Miracle. Now, Miracle recounts the story of the 1980 men's Olympic hockey team at Lake Placid as they take on the Russians. Now, the Americans, as they were preparing, were kind of like a ragtag group of college kids, none of whom had done anything spectacular in their careers. And the Russians were the greatest show on ice. They were the best team to ever live. And so as Coach Herb Brooks called his team into camp to begin training and begin qualifiers, things weren't going very well. You see, each of these boys was playing in such a way that you could tell that they were trying to prove they were enough. And who blames them? They were competing for a spot on the Olympic team. This is their dream. Yet the coach recognized as they played against each other that the team just was not gelling. That each player was there for his own glory. And if the man skating next to him stumbled... They were better off because they had a better chance of making the team. 
And so after one particularly frustrating qualifying game, Coach Herb Brooks stops them from getting off the ice, and he tells them to hit the line. And if any of you have ever participated in any sort of sports, you know when your coach tells you to hit the line that bad things are going to happen. And so this team lines up, and they begin skating the rink back and forth, back and forth. And as they skate, you can tell that the Coach Brooks is getting angry. And in a moment of frustration, he turns to the boys as they're skating and he says, you better believe that the name on the front of your jersey is more important than the one on the back. And they keep skating harder and harder until exhausted and stooped over, gasping for breath. One player says, my name's Mike Arruzioni and I skate for the United States of America. Coach blows his whistle and tells him to head to the locker room. This is what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's a pep talk. It's testimony of people, if they were compared by the name on their back, would never reach the standards required. Coach Brooks knew that none of his ragtag players could skate with these Russians. None of them on an individual level was talented enough to stack up against even the worst of the Russian team. But if they could start playing for the name on the front of their jerseys, if they could start gelling and playing like a team, they might have a chance. The name on the back of Rahab's jersey would bring her shame would bring her anger, would bring her pointed fingers. The name on the back of Moses' jersey would put him in jail. The name on the back of Noah's jersey would be filled with humiliation. But they understood that what mattered was the name on the front, was living and dwelling with God. At the end of every pep talk, there's one rah-rah statement. And Hebrews chapter 11 isn't very different. And if you're familiar at all with our middle school program, you know that it's from this verse that we get our name cow. But in Hebrews 12, verse 1, the author finishes off by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I want to pause for a moment with that word cloud. Because a cloud in Israel does not hold the same meteorological value as it does to us right now. If you've been to Israel or seen pictures, you know that it is one of the clearest countries in the world. That for months out of the year, it would be rare to even see just a little wisp of a cloud. Yet the author uses cloud intentionally here as they rally the troops of faith. Because a cloud held deep spiritual symbolism for the Israelites. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt, they followed after God as he took the form of a pillar of clouds. 
freed from their captivity, they followed the pillar of clouds to the promised land. When finally the Israelites had established themselves and settled and began to build a temple for their God, it says that the priests were forced from the space because the presence of God dwelled within the temple like a thick cloud. When Jesus takes Peter and James and John up to the mountain and is transfigured and is speaking with these heroes of the faith and God ascends upon the mountain or descends upon the mountain, it says that the mountain was covered in a thick cloud. This word was used intentionally. When we talk about a cloud of witnesses, we're talking about a group of people, not just us, but all of the heroes of the faith and the thousands that came after them that live in such a way that they are God's representation here on earth, tapping into something much, much deeper than themselves and literally living as his presence here. The beginning, we talked about these trees that were competing for limited resources. These trees that were suffocating each other just because of their close proximity. Yet in the background today, we have seen pictures of these aspen forests where these trees grow so close together. And I know I, for one, wonder how is it possible that the soil there can sustain that kind of life? Aspen trees are found in rocky terrain that is devoid of much of the nutrients needed. But what some of us might not know is that aspens are the largest organism on earth. That the aspen tree survives in such a tight-knit community because instead of competing against each other for the soil, for the nutrients, instead their root system is intertwined. And each tree is living off of the nutrients and resources of all the others. Their root system stretches for acres deep within the soil. And tree after tree sprouts up from it. Now an aspen tree on its own as an individual lives about 40 to 150 years. The oldest aspen root system is 80,000 years. You see, this is a picture of what it means for us to live in a community that is tapped into this cloud, that is tapped into the presence of God, that is willing to ask for great things in his name and see God sustain those lives and sustain those dreams. Now, there's a pastor at Life Center Church in Tacoma, Washington, near my hometown named Dean Curry. And Dean Curry at Life Center um, would sometimes sheepishly say that they were known for their Christmas pageant. When, when you heard Life Center Church, you thought about little children dressed up as sheep. And you thought of the nativity scene that was done nicely. But that all changed in 2006 when Dean went on a trip to a small country in Africa named Lesotho. And after a day of visiting projects and seeing the poorest of the poor, seeing those afflicted by the devastation of AIDS, looking to the eyes of little children that were thirsty and hungry, he laid in his bed and wept. 
And he wept not because of the pain, not because of the suffering he saw, but instead he wept because he knew that their missions budget just wasn't enough. That this couldn't just be another thing they put on the checklist of places we tithe. That this country needed something much, much more. And he felt unable to provide anything. But laying there in that bed that night, he felt God telling him something. He felt God calling him to dig into that root system. Stop competing for the resources necessary. To be willing to ask for great things in God's name and be expecting them to happen. And so he went home and he launched the Global Neighbor Project in Tacoma, Washington. And he began to enlist the help of the mayor, of public school principals, of policemen, of judges and attorneys of local businesses. He even enlisted the support of the local humane society. And he started a project of people that were excited about investing together the resources that they had in order to provide for the country of Lesotho. And they began partnering with World Vision. That was right in their neighborhood. And World Vision estimates that they did the work that would be expected to be done in 15 years in the course of only five. And because of his vision and his willingness to tap into this system, not only is the community in Tacoma thriving together and seeing Christianity in a new way, a community that is no longer known for their Christmas pageant, but instead for their work with the poorest of the poor. But those roots have also extended beneath thousands of miles to a small country of Lesotho. You see, if we believe that in community, as we tap in to this God that we love, if we believe that we can do great things, then God will bless those things. But instead, if we're content to compete against each other and do a good thing here and there and pat ourselves on the back and point out the sin of someone else to assure that we have a place in heaven... We'll be known for our divisiveness. We'll be known for our hatred and our anger. So as we leave this place, let's think about how can just this community right here, how can we be a catalyst for change? How can we begin getting tied in and engrafted into this cloud of witnesses? How can we begin living boldly, asking God for great things in his name? And then watching God follow through in ways greater than we even saw in his life on earth. I have two things that we want to remember as we leave. Two questions, really. Are you living in such a way that the power of Christ is evident in your life? Are you living in such a way that people look at you and can recognize that something's different? There's something about that person. They they dream bold. They do big things. They're not afraid of challenges, and they do all of this in the name of Christ to bring more to him. And the second question is, are you surrounded by others that share in that power? I'm convinced if we can answer those questions with a yes, 
that Christ Church can be a catalyst for change in this community. And our roots can extend far beyond Oak Brook. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, to hear the witness of your story as it is told by broken, sinful, and flawed people. Lord, tonight we pray that we'll stop pointing our fingers. That we'll stop competing against one another. Lord, that we'll no longer be insecure that we do not have a place in heaven. But instead, we may confidently go before you. Allowing you to make us your reflection here on earth. And allowing you to do to continue the good works that you did here on earth through this church. We pray this in your name. Amen.